1944, during World War II, there was a specific island close to Japan that was a major threat to the war, and it was called Chichijima. And at this island, there was over 25,000 troops, Japanese troops there, and there was also two radio towers that were for communication for Japan. And alongside of them, they had multiple anti-aircraft weapons to protect those radio towers. Now, obviously, these were a major threat, so the U.S. tried and tried to take out these radio towers, but failed over many, many attempts. So finally, they created a mission, and they had multiple pilots on this mission, and alongside all these pilots was a young man named George, and he was 20 years old. He was actually the youngest pilot in the U.S. Navy, and he had actually been on multiple different missions in the past. In fact, he had actually been on a mission where his plane had been shot down, and he had to eject out of it. So he had experienced war before. Now, this was a very challenging mission, and because of his experience, he was amongst some of the first planes to go out, which means this was one of the riskiest roles that you could have during World War II. Well, alongside him came two men named John and William. They, their plan was to go over 8,000 feet and then drop down, release the bombs on one of the towers, and then raise back up to 8,000 feet. Well, as they started descending from 8,000 feet, they were immediately getting shot by these anti-aircraft weapons, and they actually got hit. But George persisted on continuing to, to go for the mission, and they actually dropped the, the bombs on the tower. They were successful, and they turned around. But by the time they turned around, when they're supposed to be lifting up, they're descending because their plane was inflamed. And now John and William are saying, we need to eject, we need to eject, we need to leave. Our plane's on fire. And George is saying, no, we need to go further and further and further. They're watching their, their other people, other planes eject immediately. And George knows from his past that the last thing you want to do is immediately eject because you do not want to be close to that island because you could get captured. So he is going as far as he can until there is almost no time left. And finally, he says they can eject. He ejects. He parachutes down into the water, comes up, and he sees a life raft that's from his plane, only 10 feet from him. He gets on it, and he immediately starts looking for John and William. Unfortunately, he can't find them anywhere. Little does he know they both died in the crash. So he's looking around, screaming out for John and William, but turns back towards the island and sees the worst thing that he could possibly see in that moment. And he sees two, actually multiple Japanese patrol boats heading straight for him and the other planes that had ejected. So he turns and he starts paddling with his hands, trying to get as far away as possible, but obviously realizes there's nothing he can do. And so he just turns back and faces them, expecting to get captured. But thankfully, about that time, more U.S. airplanes come in, dropping more bombs on the island, which distract these patrol boats from him. So he sees this as, as an opportunity. He turns back, starts paddling for hours until he just has nothing left in him, and he just passes out on the raft, and then hears something underneath him, and up comes a periscope from a U.S. submarine. And this man then is saved from the island. Now, <clears throat> unfortunately, there was eight other men who were not so lucky. 
At first they thought that they must have just drowned at sea, but later on, in around 2004, it was found out that these men were captured and tortured and killed. And George had no idea what he had escaped from until he was 80 years old. And you can decide if you want to go read what exactly happened to him, but I can tell you it's brutal. But George did not take his second opportunity uh, of life for granted. In fact, George H.W. Bush would become the 41st president of the United States in 1989, and his son, George Bush, would then become the 43rd president. And none of this would have happened if he had bailed out of the plane earlier. He knew how severe that mission was. He knew the risks, yet he knew what was best for our country, and I think his war story will always be an example on fighting for what is right. And when you hear the story, you, you might think, how would I ever relate to that, oh, that kind of crazy war story? But I want to challenge you to think like Bush did at war when it comes to your faith. You see, until Jesus returns, there will always be spiritual warfare in our life, and we'll face many different trials and tribulations as believers, and we have to be prepared to treat them all the same no matter how severe they are. And so if you're a true believer in Christ, you know that this means that we are at war with the world, our life will be a constant battle. And I've even mentioned in the past that, in, in some of my past sermons, that we are never promised peace on this earth. We're promised a peace of mind to know what comes after, but not peace that that is going to be here on this earth. And so with this in mind, how do we prepare for that spiritual journey that we are facing now or might face in the, in the future? It's crazy to think, almost a couple years ago, our student ministry went through one of my favorite books, First Timothy. And I think First Timothy speaks directly into this. Now, if you want to go ahead and turn to First Timothy chapter 6, we're going to be looking primarily at verses 11 through 16. As you do that, I want to explain why 1 Timothy is one of my favorite books. 1 Timothy is a book that is written from Paul to Timothy. Now, Paul and Timothy had been doing ministry together for 15 years. Timothy saw Paul as a mentor. Paul treated Timothy like one of his disciples and even his own son. That's the relationship that they had. And so in this situation... Paul is trying to encourage Timothy where he's at. He's in Ephesus, and he's trying to encourage him in his faith. So earlier in 1 Timothy, for context, in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul writes to Timothy to let no one despise him of his youth. Now, this word youth is typically used to describe people who are under the age of 40. So we know at this time Timothy is in his late 30s, and we know that in this place, Typically, respect is connected to age. And so if you, do, if you are not old, you have no respect. And so in the place where Timothy is, he's trying to earn that respect. And so Paul is trying to encourage him in his faith. So in this first section, we're going to see kind of a reiteration of some of the things that he's already said in this letter. The, he, he says multiple things here at the end. It's a summary, and that's why I think it's one of the greatest spots to really look over. And so I want to go ahead and, and read this. 
So let's start at verse 11. It says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Okay, right there he's talking about the confession that he made as a believer. He's saying, take hold of the eternal life and, and reminding him, hey, you made this decision to be a believer in front of many people. And he says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And a similar point is made actually in verse uh, in 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 18, where Paul challenges Timothy to wage the good warfare. So obviously, he is incur- Paul is encouraging Timothy as a young pastor. And Timothy, at this point, needs to realize that he's not only in a battle for his faith, he is a battle, he's in a battle for the faith, the gospel. And this is something that I want us all to realize today. So when I read this passage, the reason I... I really love this section is because I see three charges that Paul gives Timothy and for us on how to fight the good fight of faith. So charge one is this. Know what to fight off. Know what to fight off. If you look at the first verse, verse 11, it says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Okay, what is he talking about? This is one of those spots where you need context to understand what he's saying. So we're going to actually take a look at a few of the verses beforehand to really understand what is it that Paul is encouraging um, or challenging Timothy to fight off or flee from. And obviously, this is a specific situation where he is telling Timothy these specific scenarios that are major issues in that time. Now, this... I can see this and read this and see that this is still happening today, but these are obviously not the only things that we are called to fight off as believers. But if you look at 1 Timothy, we're going to uh, look at chapter 6, verse 3 through 5. So just, you might just need to turn the page back one, and it'll say this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So, clearly, the first distraction that Paul is talking about out of the two that he mentions before he's saying fight off these things is false teaching. Now, there are certain situations in life where it becomes pretty obvious when someone is a false teacher and they, we should not really listen to what they have to say. For instance, 
there are way too many people on social media that have a platform for no reason. I look at even movie stars and Tom Cruise, that guy is whack. But somehow, because he's good at pretending, we're going to listen to his idea of Scientology. If you want to look that up, it'll blow your mind that someone would believe in that. But that's what he believes. And just because he's great at acting, all of a sudden he has a say in what life is. So sometimes like that, it's, it's clear as day that this is a false teacher. This is, this is a problem. And so what I'm seeing is, how do you notice who a false teacher is? The first thing is, what is it that they are affirming? What is it that they are affirming? So obviously, someone like Tom Cruise, pretty obvious, he's affirming Scientology, and if you read scripture, you know that's not truth. So sometimes it can be more challenging. For instance, when I was at a community college in the area, you can kind of figure that one out, but I was in a history class, history class of all of them, and we started talking about history before it's really, there's any kind of evidence to what they're talking about. And so we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years ago, and I remember our, our first assignment was to write a discussion board, and, and I was thinking, I am not going to sit here and affirm this. I'm not going to sit here and, and show that I believe in this, and so in the discussion board post, I just wrote that I don't believe what we are learning about. I don't believe that that is truth, but I am eager to learn about what other people believe in. My professor did not like that, and so she decided to read my discussion board post in front of everybody, so that was great. But luckily, she didn't say my name specifically, but I knew at that moment, at the very beginning of the class, she knew who I was. So we can see who a false teacher is based on what they affirm. We can also see a false teacher based on what they deny. If you look at the, the second part of this passage, it says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, so what is it that they're affirming, and then does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, that is saying, what is it that they are denying? What are they openly rejecting? I also can see in this world today that many people will reject anything to not get canceled. We live in cancel culture. It's fun. I don't really want to talk about it much. It drives me nuts. But that's the world we live in today where people will, will deny anything just to make sure that they are not canceled. The second thing that we see in this comes from verses 9 and 10. So the first thing that Paul charges us to fight off is false teachers, false teaching. And the second thing is, it comes from verse 9 and 10. It says this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into temptation, into a snare, into senseless and harmless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, obviously, these are two different scenarios where the enemy is trying to blur the line between truth and fiction. These are two of them. And I think this is a, a great example of why we need to be reading Scripture. Because if we can look at this one section and see, all right, here's some major issues that we're dealing with in society today. There's so much more in the Word, and we can't expect to know what is sin, what is truth, if we're not diving into the Word and reading and learning. But what I'm seeing in this I see a love of money as, as sin. I'm not trying to say that money itself is sin. 
But I, I can see how that can cause so many evils, just like what this passage says. For instance, on Wednesday we had a internet safety night for our student ministry and the parents and anyone who wanted to join. And we had Detective Sergeant Austin Schwartz from Powhatan come and share some information, some insider information to give us a new perspective on some of the dangers and risks of social media. And we wouldn't have this problem, I firmly believe, if there wasn't a unhealthy love for money. The things that have happened to the internet is because of money. People want money so bad that they will sell and do whatever it takes to get the paycheck. And so as the market becomes bigger for certain things, the market also becomes darker, so then people will provide those certain things. So then now we have something that is accessible for nine-year-old kids that is one of the most corrupt things in the world. And just for an example, one of the biggest things that I see as something that it causes so much damage to our world, it messes with the human's brain, it messes with marriages. When we look at the internet, one of the biggest issues is obviously pornography. And, and when I looked at just some statistics, it is clear as day that the love of money is what's driving this. So for instance, the porn industry generates more income than the combined revenues of the NFL, NBA, and MLB. It generates up to $100 billion a year, and every second over $3,000 will be spent on pornography. That is a love of money. So Paul's challenging to fight up, for us to fight off these things and try and understand that and get rid of that blurred line that, that the enemy is trying to create. And so we're challenged to fight off these things, but how exactly do we do it? We know what specifically he's talking about here, but how? A soldier would often say that one of their best tools would be their feet. In other words, if they're in a, a place where there is danger, they're not going to camp out there. They're going to fight it by fleeing. And we need to fight these temptations, these lustful desires, by fleeing from them. If we entertain temptation, we will fall and we have to fight it by fleeing. And so how do we flee these distractions? Paul gives us that in his second charge to Timothy. Charge two is this. Know what to fight for. So obviously you can't just fight by fleeing and just run. And we're not trying to be Forrest Gump here, just run into one side of the U.S. and then just stop there and be like, well, run to the other side. No, we have to have something we're doing. We have to have some kind of goal. And so we fight off those evil desires by fighting for something. And, and look what he says. He says, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And I think some of these are kind of paired up, and I want to talk about that. So first we have righteousness and godliness. So righteousness can, can often be seen as what's seen on the outside, where godliness is more focused on our hearts and motive. Now, obviously, we need both. We can't only strive for our outward self to be presentable to the world. I think a lot of times we struggle with that. A lot of times we focus on just trying to make, make ourselves look like we're okay. I've done it, and I know it happens. A lot of times here at church, we're afraid to show that we're struggling. And so we'll put on the face and say, I'm good. 
I'm great. One of the things that I noticed at, at school when I was at Liberty was if, if you just ask someone like one more time if they're actually doing okay, you quickly realize that they're not. And, and believe me, it is an opportunity to pray and encourage other believers. And so I challenge you to do that and try that. I would just simply ask, hey, how are you doing? Good. I'm like, how are you really doing? And then they'd cry. <laughs> like, let's talk about it. So, but let's talk about this right here. So know what to fight for. So we talk about not trying to strive for only our outward self, but we need our outward self to be a result of our inward self that has been radically changed by the gospel. Next, we have faith and love. We have faith by trusting the Lord and his plans and love because we trust the Lord and his commands. Wow, I'm rhyming. I should be a rapper. I'm great. It's so good. <laughs> and finally, we have steadfastness, or you might have perseverance and gentleness. So we stand firm in the tasks and challenges that God gives us, yet we have to show kindness to those that we interact with. So we're fighting for these things. We're obviously fighting against the, the desires of the world. And, and you can only be on one side of the war. You can't fight for both. So, so we have to check ourselves and see, are, are we fighting for the Lord? And so Paul's trying to encourage Timothy to pursue the things of God, to pull him away from the desires of the flesh. And so Paul's last charge to Timothy helps us understand that this is not just a moment where we check off a box. I'm not trying to give you a message saying, hey, do this one thing, one time, and that's it. You're good. You can do whatever you want for the rest of your life. No, we see this in the third charge. And charge three is this. Know how to keep fighting. Know how to keep fighting. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. It says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ who is in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So like I said, Paul's reminding him of the decision he made. He said, you made this commitment in front of people. People know, you, you have to remind yourself, you committed your life to Christ. And when he says, take hold of eternal life, he's not trying to say that we have to hold on to eternal life so tightly because there's a chance that we could lose it. Now, as believers, we are in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But until we are made perfect, we will constantly struggle to experience life fully. And so we need to fight this daily battle and understand that the Lord is fighting for us as well. And we keep fighting by consistently living out the first two charges. So in verse 13, let's talk about this. It says, We'll talk about 13 and 14. Actually, we'll, we'll look at 14. We'll come back to 13. It says, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So, Paul was quick 
to correct the Galatians. If you read the first part of Galatians, he is quick to correct them and try and align them back to the gospel, saying it is unfortunate how quickly you were to desert the gospel. So, then he also says to, to Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So he's trying to help Timothy align with the word and not make the same mistakes that the Galatians made. And, and when he says free from reproach, he means without blemish. So there should not be a single area, area where we as believers interpret anything that would overrule what the Lord commands us to do. And I think too many Christians do that today where they twist the words of Scripture around to try and accept all types of worldviews. And I wanted to come back to verse 13 specifically because imagine the charge that Paul gives Timothy here. And he says in verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God. That is serious. And then he also says, and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I want you to think about that. He's trying to remind, he, first he reminds Timothy of the, the confession that Timothy made, but then he's also trying to remind him of the, the confession that Jesus made in front of Pontius Pilate. Jesus stood firm in his faith, knowing that he is king and he declared his kingship in front of Pontius Pilate, knowing what would come ahead of him. He knew that he was going to be killed. He knew that he would be nailed to a cross by people who he came to save. And I often like to talk about the, the pain that he feels, but I think it's important to also think about the weight of the sin on him when he got on the cross. I want you to think about the, the last time you felt guilt, that feeling in your stomach, in your chest, and it's like you can't even breathe. Imagine all the weight of your guilt, my guilt, everyone in here, everyone who's ever existed placed on Jesus when he's on the cross. Can you imagine what that feels like? I have no idea. And that's what he's experiencing in that, and in that moment, and he knows it's coming, and yet he stands firm and he declares his kingship in front of Pontius Pilate. And so, when you hear this, if you're not a believer, you might be sitting here thinking, this doesn't sound like a good fight for me. You know, we're going to constantly have struggles in life, and I don't want to, to sign up for this battle. And I understand it can be a challenge to, to understand what a good fight is. Paul says specifically to fight the good fight for the faith. David Platt wrote this. This is a good fight, and the fight is for eternal life. It's a fight for peace, confidence, and hope. Not just for you, but so that others too will escape everlasting torment and receive eternal life. This is a good fight, but that doesn't mean it's easy. This is a good fight because unlike Bush, who had no idea what the outcome would be of that war, we are fighting a battle that we already know how it ends. 
We are fighting a battle knowing that Jesus took all the suffering and torment upon himself so that we can fight for what he did. And then just like that video, we know we are going to experience a moment in life where we return home. So as we go into a time of response, I want to ask, what side of the fight are you on? Maybe you like, you like to imagine yourself on the right side, yet there's nothing in your life that mirrors the life of Christ. Maybe God has even called you to do something specific as a believer. Maybe you are, maybe you have signed up. Maybe you have confessed that Jesus is Lord and God has called you to do something, but yet you are terrified of the outcome, so you want to bail out of your spiritual mission and give up. Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily and follow him. That means daily we die to ourself, we die to our desires, we die to our temptations, and we die for him, and we follow him. So what is it that you need to fight off? What are you failing to fight for? And what changes do you need to make in your life to keep fighting for the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that it can be a challenge to, to sometimes sign up for, for some people to sign up for the good fight. It might be a scary thought, God, that they're going to face hate in this world God, I look at this world and I see that there is nothing gratifying about it. God, I, I am thankful that I don't have to sit there out of fear, but I can have hope that there's something after. I can have hope in what you have done for us so that our relationship with you can be restored. God, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for what you did on the cross. I'm so thankful for something that none of us could ever experience, none of us could even imagine what it, it would be to experience what Jesus did on the cross. So God, I pray that if there's anyone in here that's struggling to, to really make that confession, confess that you are Lord and follow you. God, I, I pray that they would hear this today and hear how corrupt the world can be and hear how there is no hope that the world can offer. There's not one. It doesn't matter what they try and offer. It always gets darker and darker and you find yourself in a, in a pit where you feel like you can't save yourself. God, I pray that they would notice that you are just reaching out, trying to grab them and save them and all they got to do is reach back. It's not like we have to do something good enough. It's not like that we have to accomplish certain things, but God, we just have to give it to you. God, I pray for those here who might have a relationship with you, and maybe you've given them a, a mission in this battle they're afraid to do. God, I pray that you would encourage them in their faith today, God, to keep fighting the good fight for the gospel, God. God, I pray that we have a time of response someone needs to come pray, someone needs to get right with someone else, God, that they would do exactly what you call them to do, God. I pray that you would push on their heart and make them uncomfortable until they do so, God. We ask this in your name. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, 
or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.